Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten, the only podcast that reviews horror films with 10 or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. If that is a new piece of information for you, you didn't listen to our last two episodes, shame on you. But otherwise, you know, it, 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 people are talking about inflation. We're getting with the times. We're up in the ante. We want to make sure that our guests can talk about the movies that excite them. And eventually Rotten Tomatoes is going to put every historical review in the database and then we're just going to be fucked. So we're going to enjoy it while we can. I am Matt Monagle. I am one half of your Matt hosts. I am joined, as always, by my friend, Matt Donato. How you doing, buddy? Doing good. And if uh, that news about 10 or fewer reviews is not new to you, then you haven't listened to a single episode and we're mad at you. <laughs> That's true, too. You're either well in the know or completely out of the know. And either way, welcome. This is a good episode for you to be joining us on. Uh, the goal here is to talk about films that have not gotten the distribution they deserved or not gotten the coverage that they deserved. And we talk to a lot of different people from a lot of different sides of the film industry and kind of unearth some of their favorite hidden gems. And I think we have a, a good guest today, um, a guest that I have been meaning to get on the show for a long time, who will probably yell at me both on, on mic and off about why it's taken us so long to get him on the show. Donato, can you please uh, please introduce today's friend on the show? Absolutely. Uh, if you have seen this person's tweets, you probably don't know they have a British accent. Uh, they are Mr. Richard Whitaker, the culture editor for the Austin Chronicle and also Matt Monagle's boss. It's true. And, and very lucky to be so. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's Thank lovely. you. He's lovely. It's true. Nobody is prepared to take trash off my hands like Matt. He's he, That is his area of expertise. Uh, he has taken up more garbage reviews and bless you for taking them, sir. So the thing for me though, is, is that you like, I am the, I'm the king at getting those Tuesday mid morning emails of like, we have a screener. Can somebody take it? Like, I love taking those. That's sort of my favorite thing. The, the range of outcomes of things that I get is sometimes you give me something and it's a moonfall. And sometimes you give me something and it's a wandering earth. And that really is like, to me, the range of potential outcomes and like these random, last minute, one screen in Austin kind of things. And, you know, I love it. I've seen movies. I've seen incredible films I never would have watched because you assigned them. Um, World War II documentaries, um, foreign films about economics and bridge building and politics. And I've seen just the worst shit I could possibly imagine. And you know what? I'm never going to be sad about uh, about I, that range of outcomes. It beats reviewing Marvel stuff every week. Those, you know those I mean? 11 a.m., on a Tuesday morning, we've suddenly crammed a single screening. Uh, you know, it's going to be at noon uh, at a uh, something that, in a more fair and just universe, would be a, a dollar repertory theater. Mm -hmm. And yes, yeah, some of them are hot garbage. And I'd say like I do eighty percent of them are hot garbage. And then once True. in a while, yeah, we get some real gems. You just like, how did how did nobody see this coming? You know, and it's just these contractual obligation screenings that somebody's getting just because they got they got a VOD deal. And part of the VOD deal was that they get distribution. They, you know, they're going to be shown theatrically in 12 markets. And Austin is often one of those 12 markets. It's like us and Duluth. And I'm nothing against Duluth, but uh, not exactly, you know, Grauman's Chinese theater, shall we say. So we, we're just still in this weird position where we're a film town that just people will just throw strange little release at us and nobody sees them coming in. Yeah, we've both stepped up on uh, on more than a few of those. So normally we we kind of go to the beginning and do this whole like chronological progression. What what was your first horror film? What got you interested in the genre? But Richard, since you're talking about kind of like the, the film distribution angle, 
I, I want you to kind of expand on that a little bit because we do have a lot of listeners in Austin because Donato and I both have you know really good connections here in the city. And I think the the this, where Austin is situated geographically, but also metaphorically and literally between New York and LA, I think it's a really interesting story. So maybe talk a little bit about kind of when your role as the Chronicle, the advocacy component and how much time you spend trying to make sure that Austin is getting qualities of films is considered a major release market in the way that, you know, like the Chicago's of the world are also struggling to do. It's, it's such a weird thing because so much of film distribution is still built around daily newspapers. And I know this is just a weird thing to, to do, but they look at that people look at the daily and go, well, how big is it? What's the distribution is distribution rising is distribution falling. Uh, do people read uh, stuff in the, in there about film and they'll make decisions based on that, which is this weird antiquated process that kind of fell out in uh, really fell out of any relevance in the nineties. And Austin to a, a, you know, a great degree was ground zero for the film blog. And so many prominent bloggers came out of here that, you know, just not anything to do with where the industry was. And in the nineties and early two thousands, we really didn't have much of a film industry. We'd had a lot in the, in the eighties and very, very early nineties of a lot of TV movies shot here. Um, but what you have is people who are going to things like Austin Film Society. They're going to uh, the famous now forgotten Dobie Theater. Uh, they were going to the VHS rental stores and they're going out and setting up blogs. So we've kind of got this weird position where we have a lot of tastemakers in town and some studios really respond to that and think it's really important that they open in Austin. Um, some of them have got these legacy relationships. So like, um, you know, Sam, Samuel Golden Mayer have a great relationship with the Regal Arbor in Austin, which is generally regarded as the uh, the pensioner and retirees cinema. But we got yeah, everything they release opens at this one at this one cinema. So we're kind of in this weird place of like somewhere between an established market, somewhere between a very cool market. We have a lot of film festivals, so this is where you know not always the biggest films are going to play at some of these festivals, but stuff that's really looking to get a few reviewer eyes on it. And you can go to any screening during a festival and there'll probably be, you know, two or three critics, some of them from very small things, some of them just happen to be in town. But the fact they're doing it in Austin gives stuff this, it's this weird cachet uh, about Austin as a film town that, you know, it's had since it was a fraction of the size. Nobody knows, you know, Austin's kind of expanding at a rate of knots, but we've had this, we've punched above our weight for a long time. Sometimes the studios really realize this, sometimes they don't. So, I mean, part of my job is to be, you know, we're the print outlet that is every week. I will review, if a film opens here and it has, yeah, you know, and, and a screener is made available, we'll run a review. That's my rule. Like we, you know, if it, it's got more than three screenings. So it's not just like an art house repertory doing a couple of showings. I'll review it. I will put somebody on it because there's these, so many of these films that really deserve a screening. I think people realize that. I think people want to know about the smaller stuff because it's, 
it's not going to play anywhere else. Maybe we are. Like like I said, we're the, one of the 12 markets that, that actually shows it for a full week. If we're the market where somebody shows something for a full week and people actually turn up, but it's not the empty screen at noon, where it's just mm-hmm. the, the guy sweeping up popcorn from the night before, um, that's a, that's important. I genuinely think that's important for getting word about films out there. And yeah, sometimes studios don't necessarily see we're here, which is weird because you know we're we're a film town. We're heading up to a population of a million. We're the 11th biggest city in America. But sometimes people will still go, eh, we really don't need to open that film in Austin. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Right. <laughs> I've had these arguments with distributors over the years. Like, can you just, you know, that thing that opens, like with, you know, not to name names, but there's a high profile documentary that's going to be you know, on a lot of Oscar lists this year that people are expecting it to be in the announcement. And we've been waiting since December for it to open in Austin. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> we've just got so many people who are eager to see films. We're a film viewing town. You know, we've Austin Film Society has played a huge role in that. The Alamo has played a huge role in that. Mm-hmm. Um, just people out there going like, you come here to watch movies. And people will actually take vacations for that. We're like, who else goes to a town just to go see films? That never happens. Yeah, Park City, but they're also going for skiing. You ain't skiing in Austin. I was going to say, like, when I was thinking about where to move from New York City, when I was very done with New York and wanted a different place to go, but also wanted that film culture and wanted to go to a film city, uh, my only choices were L.A. and Austin, and, like, they were neck and neck. And I think about Austin, you know, what you're talking about of how it is a film area film city whatever you want to call it like festivals are huge for me for that because i pre-pandemic when i was traveling fantastic fest south by southwest that was like four weeks out of my year that i spent in austin like like that was more than i think i've spent in any other city ever for like the six years plus that i was attending those festivals yearly and how much i saw there how much that just ingrained in my head that like austin was a film city and like all the stuff you're saying like i never thought twice about it being like a smaller market i actually thought it was like (laughs) a a bigger market the way that like even fantastic fest was pulling in films that i thought were punching way above their weight for you know an alamo draft house festival so like that was always fresh in my mind i'm like i'm either going to be in la or austin i like both vibes and both vibes give me such opportunity to continue what i'm doing with film um that like it was such like a, a coin flip and it was it was barely barely edged out for la but no i've always seen austin as like a film city i guess well, to describe it as that you know there's actually austin hosts more film festivals and i'm not kidding on this than any other city I would including have. new york and la we have more dedicated film festivals and we run the gamut you know we've got fantastic fest we got south by we've got austin film festival which is very writer-centric uh we've got other worlds which is uh science fiction with a horror substrand We've got Aglip, the Austin, uh, the, the formerly the Austin Gay and Les- Lesbian International Film Festival, now All Genders Lifestyles uh, Film Festival. Um, we just, you know, we have Indie Meme, which is all from uh, all India, Pakistani, Bangladeshi films. Um, we got Austin Asian American. We just have this incredible variety. And if you got an interest as a film fan, there's probably a film festival for you. We've even got these like real underground festivals. Like, you know, we've got Austin Revolution Film Festival is coming up. And I don't think they've ever played anything with a budget over $5,000, including features. You know, this is real run and gun stuff. But that's what we do. You can pretty much every, you know, I would say every week, 
go to a film festival, but I wish that was true because quite often they're over each other. <laughs> so some weeks I'm like, oh God, I got three festivals to do. Well, you know, just not sleeping. Um, you know, they keep clear of the big ones, but the small ones kind of pile on each other or they last, you know, three or four weeks. So they're just, you know, you're just kind of working out which one you want to cover at any one point. But yeah, we're a, we're a film viewing town that is increasingly becoming a film making town as well. And we've got this long mm-hmm. tradition of indie filmmakers We've now got a you know a big infrastructure base for making bigger films, a lot of TV series here. But we started that because we're a film watching town, and it's such a part of the identity. I think you know I argue with people all the time because we're the live music capital of the world, and I'm like, well, yeah, fine. Uh, you know, I upset some people say if you want to go down and walk down Sixth Street and hear four different bands in adjoining bars. Uh, playing the same Stone Temple Pilots cover, great. This this sometimes is a really great town for you. But if you want real variety, look what's showing in our cinemas. You know, we we've got we've got drive-ins showing art house movies. Where else can you say that? <laughs> I mean, they you know we've been called the third coast for years, and you know I think that's really true for films. It's it's us, New York and L.A. When people are really talking about opening a film at a festival when they want eyes on it, when they want cachet, and they and people take risks here. You know, South by Southwest is famous for there'll be a, a Friday, uh, you know, there'll be a Friday or Saturday night opening weekend R-rated comedy, Sausage Party, uh, you know, that <sighs> played first at South by, and people were like, "This is not going to work. This is this is not the place to show it." And it opened, uh, you know, it it played the uh, the Saturday night at the Alamo Ritz, blew the doors off. And they went, "Okay, we actually have something." We, uh, that's the other thing. I think we're a very receptive audience in Austin. And I think that's what defines us. We'll, we'll, you know, if it's bad, we don't, we just stop talking about it. If it's good, we'll sing the praises to the high heavens. And that's, I, I always liked kind of the curatorial aspect, I think, that you're describing. Because when I was in grad school, I um, studied under Ira Deutschman, who, if you know the New York film scene, Ira Deutschman is like a well-respected independent film producer um, who's worked in like, uh, you know, Basketball Diaries was one of his projects. He's, he's any independent film that's set in New York, he probably had a hand in it. And he works with a lot of producers that come out of the film scene there. So this is a man that spends his life going to film festivals. And he always said to anyone that would listen, the greatest film festival in the world is the Cleveland International Film Festival because people are happy to be there. You get a lot of talent that travels and it is a true best of the fest in the sense that like it is a it's curating stuff from other film festivals that people really want to see and you have an audience that is going there to watch movies and is engaged with it it's not about kind of like the publicity or glitz and grammar or premieres and things of that nature it's about true film lovers going and seeing movies at this festival that's curated just for them and i think that's i i wouldn't have been able to articulate it until this conversation but i think that's something that i see a lot in stuff like you know any of the the many mission driven film festivals that we have but also you know, South by Southwest has a really good best of the fest program. A lot of, you know, Fantastic Fest is notorious for reprogramming really good titles from other genre festivals around the world. I like living in a city where not everything that plays at a festival is going to be a premiere. I like this best of the fest thing because it is a little egalitarian. It is sort of saying, yeah, we want to bring, we want to give people access to good movies wherever they come from, wherever they started and make sure that people here get a chance to watch them especially as we all know with film distribution can traditional film distribution shrinking you know less screens more blockbusters the ability to see an independent film from another country at a film festival that might be the only chance you ever get to see that film on a big screen and we're also getting we're also very lucky because we do have 
programmers around here who are prepared to go, mm. let's let's push the envelope. Let's we, we'll take the risk on you know, maybe a two or three year old release that didn't open in Austin originally. It, you know, somebody's paid for a 4K restoration. We'll bring it back and we'll do five screenings at you know the Alamo or, or the Austin Film Society uh, Cinema or at Blue Starlight Drive-In. And we'll take that risk. And maybe nobody turns up, but if they do, then we'll book more screenings. And it's it's one of the interesting things for me about Austin and programming is a lot of places, particularly the bigger chains, they're so locked in by contractual obligations that even if they want to show something, they don't have the space. You know, they're told, you know, well, you want, you know, the next Fantastic Beasts, you have to take five prints and you have to do a minimum number of screenings uh, per day. Well, you know, you lose, you lose the leeway. Whereas, you know, we've got enough of that kind of film society, alternative cinema, independent booking approach. So that people are much more willing to go, yeah, I'll, I'll roll the dice and show something that, yeah, maybe nobody will turn up. But I've only, I'm only booking it for two screenings because I've got the capacity to just do two screenings. I don't have to run everything the same thing every day. And I think we've, you know, that's not unique to Austin, but the us having multiple venues that are prepared to do that is a little bit more leeway than I think you you see in a lot of other markets where they're literally mm. going like we've got one art house cinema, you know, who's doing, you know, yeoman's work, but they can only carry so much of the load. Richard, I could talk to you about the Austin film scene forever. And I probably will because as you previously established, you are my boss, um, <laughs> but I do want, I do want to take a little bit of time and talk a bit about you too, because I think there are probably going to be people that will only know you as a film writer, but I think that there might be some people that are listening to this and are like, I remember Richard back when he was on the political beat. So I'd love, I'd love, because I don't think I've ever actually asked you this question. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about how you got started in politics and why you left at the opportunity to cover film um, when that door kind of cracked open for you a little bit. Oh, well, it, I have never taken a direct route to anything in my life. <laughs> That's the one truism. Um, yeah, I my first two degrees out of far too many, uh, because for some unknown reason, I kept falling back into academia for my sins. Uh, we're actually in uh, medieval history. Um, sure. So take that for what you want. Um, and I actually worked for the Yorkshire Archaeological Trust for a while. And then I went into print production management. Yeah. So you need somebody to uh, put your university curriculum together and uh, send it to the printers. I'm your man. Um, Booming industry now, print production. Oh, yeah. But then, you know, I, in the mid-90s, uh, I actually worked for an organization called DFAX, which was a specialist defense news agency uh, that was actually paid for by the Quakers. So every story you wrote was secretly pacifist and uh, pro-disarmament, um, which, <laughs> and I worked on two titles, uh, Hang On To Your Hats, International Peacekeeping News, uh, and Disarmament Diplomacy, uh, both of which only ran about 300 issue uh, 300 copies printed of each issue but they were kind of the trade journals for their <laughs> i know how do you end up here um, so when, when you say that they were secretly pacifist you actually meant they were overtly pacifist yes okay, um, okay i got you they were they were for 
you know, basically if you were involved in the disarmament industry of, you know, you were negotiating or you want to keep up with, you know, what was being talked about in relation to armed propagation, you know, AK-47 propagation in the Middle East, um, or, you know, who was trying to pretend that they were developing chemical weapons in Africa. We were your go-to publication, weirdly enough. Um, and while I was working with them, you know, I that's when I first fell initially into doing some film criticism, just because I loved film and just, you know, I had my own blog back then and that kind of did that for, you know, did that in the background for years, just a hobby. And then, you know, when I did come to the States and I went to the University of Texas to do my master's in journalism, because I've been freelancing over the years, you know, written for some weird publications. I wrote for a cycling magazine once, even though I don't bike and I have no sense of balance. Uh, I wrote for 14 times the, uh, the magazine of uh, paranormal uh, studies. Um, and when I went to UT, uh, I just kind of ended up doing politics stuff because I was fascinated by it because Texas politics is just a car crash. Oh, yeah. uh, and it turned out I had a knack for it, particularly because I was very dismissive of a lot of stupidity that a lot of people would just go, well, that's just how Texas does things. I was like, yeah, but that's idiotic and dangerous. Um, and it's called an outsider perspective, Richard. You brought an outsider perspective. I was also prepared to have people never talk to me again. Um, so that was helpful. Uh, Rick Perry had this very particular look on his face whenever I'd ask a question in a press conference. Um, it looked like somebody had given him a very old, dry, sour lime to suck on, uh, but he had to pretend it was cake. So it was just this, this mixture of like, I got to do this, but I really don't want to do it. And nothing about this fills me with even a modicum of pleasure. So that made me very happy. Um, and the thing about the Chronicle is that it's always been um, a small ship. So if you're prepared to do something else, they'll let you. So as the years went on, I kind of like slowly expanded the amount of film coverage I did. You know, started off just doing some festival coverage because they really needed people at festivals. And then I was like, well, we don't have a DVD column, do we? And they're like, oh, we don't care. If you want to do it, do it on your own time. And I'm like, okay, because mm. I was kind of doing it on my own time anyway. And this meant more free DVDs. Yes. Which then became free Blu-rays. Yes. Uh, which <laughs> then became free streaming links. Uh, yeah. um, and over time, I think, you know, just steadily, you know, moved back to kind of where my passion always was. So it's always, it's not less moving straight across and more kind of like letting them know that I was doing this anyway, and then letting me just build that up over time. So it's kind of been this weird, complicated thing, but yeah, I mean, there are people who, you know, still know me as, you know, this nonsense guy from, you know, the token British guy around the Texas legislature. And, and, uh, you know, but there are other people who only know me from, you know, terrible film opinions. Um, and advocacy for, for films that are like, how could you like that? And I'm like, I don't care. Shut up. <laughs> Which is kind of my metier. <laughs> well, I, just go that... I'm, I think that I'm just, you know, pointlessly iconoclastic or contrarian. I'm like, no, this is just my taste. Like, how do you not get this? Like, this is, you know, just from my weird background of like 
80s British indie films and you know staying up too late and and watching the watching films that I should never ever ever have been watched yeah I, there's a lot of you could say a lot of things about your taste Richard but authentic is the there it's the only word you could use to describe your taste is authentically yours <laughs> nobody's gonna that, pretend to have my tastes <laughs> no why would why would you why, why would, would you, you? <laughs> but that does that does raise the question is, is there? I think I so I think of you. Um, I don't think of you exclusively as a genre guy because I think you're you know you're like me in the sense that that I think of you as somebody who can write about everything. But like if you basically give you a stack of DVDs and say choose the ones you want to write about, you're going to pull out like some of the indie horror titles. So was genre stuff always the thing? Whether that's you know I, I know you do a lot of coverage with like sci-fi and horror and things of that nature. Were you always drawn to genre cinema? Or is that something that is kind of a reflection of, for all the reasons we talked about before, what's there to cover the most in Austin? Oh, no. I mean, it's the the moment that damned me um, and set me on the path that I'm on um, was 1978 when Star Wars opened in the UK. It did not open in 1977 in the UK. Back then, you had to wait three to six months for whatever was playing in the US to finally make it to the UK. And what they do, and I'm not kidding on this, the prints would turn up looking like garbage Mm -hmm. because they were the same prints that had played the US and they'd wait until they'd finished doing their American run. And then they'd just splice the, um, the BBFC ratings card at the beginning and then you'd watch the film and if you stuck around to the end it would have the mpaa rating card on the end on the end of the last reel they wouldn't cut it off which is how i discovered there was such a thing as american ratings when i go this young kid but yeah um day one i was there with my grandmother and she you know it, 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 star wars opened at the macclesfield majestic which was this classic 1930s picture house that was like white marble front and just you know the seats hadn't been changed since the 30s and i went in and big ship chasing little ship done completely doomed from that point on just Mm -hmm. changed my world and you know horror uh you can blame a company a combination of uh juvenile insomnia uh parents that slept like a log um and the bbc uh, because my parents on a Saturday night would go to bed early. They were in bed by 10. I could not sleep when I was a kid. I was always waking up really early and staying up too late. So I'd wait, I'd go to bed when I was told, and then I'd wait for them to go to bed. And I'd creep downstairs and put the television on and sit about two foot away with the volume way down so I could hear it and nobody else in the house could. So basically, it's like, you know, proto IMAX, you know, right up against the screen. Everything's just around you, even oh, yeah. though, you know, it's a, uh, you know, old fashioned tube. So you could see the individual dots. 4X, um, baby, 4X. Oh, beautiful. Uh, and the BBC would have this terrible habit of on a Saturday night, they'd show horror double bills. And they just put random stuff on like pairings that you're just like, what on earth were you thinking? So, you know, sometimes they go, well, we're going to show, you know, the original Bela Lugosi Dracula. And then 
Christopher Lee and Dracula 2000. Uh, you know, just just the you know just Dracula 1981. Just these random combinations, or they'd show you know Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And I was like six at the time, and I remember watching this stuff, and I'm like, okay, this is great. This is what I want to watch for the rest of my life. And then you drop Star Wars on top of that, and I'm just doomed. And you know, that and a combination of you know Ray Harryhausen. Uh, which Harryhausen has a particular place in the British psyche um, because they were the first, you know, really the first effects movies that people associate with being really British effects movies. And yet they were always on at major holidays. So like Christmas and Easter, uh, ITV, which is the BBC's rival, they'd show a Ray Harryhausen film. That would be their big thing. So you know, you'd watch seven. You know, you, you know, you'd watch Sinbad, or you know, when they finally got it, they'd show Clash of the Titans. But yeah, you know, it was the big thing. You'd wait and you'd watch the Harryhausen film, and uh, you know, watching the skeletons fighting. You know, this just I was just like, ah, oh, this stuff's amazing. But you kind of, I mean, when I was young, I was like, oh god, you got to wander through like this story. I don't care. But as years went on, I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm gonna try and appreciate the story. And like then in the mid '80s, I was, yeah, you know, when I was old enough to uh, take the train on a Saturday afternoon up to Manchester, which was the nearest big city, and go to um, the art the art house cinema up there. And literally, I'd just go and like, well, what's on? And I. I'd go up in the morning, take the first train that I could and go to the comic store, load up on the comics that I could get, uh, see if Fangoria was in because you, know, you didn't always get it. And so if you saw a copy of Fangoria or, or you know, Starlog or Starburst, you'd grab it because you wouldn't be guaranteed you'd ever see it again. Uh, mm-hmm. So I just have these like weird random copies of, of, of magazines from that era. Uh, and then I'd go to um, the corner house, which was the the art house cinema, and just watch what was ever whatever was going to play in time for me to get my uh, my train home at six o'clock. So I just you're just dropping these completely random whatever was on, you know, making Mister Right uh, or. Uh, you know, Le Flick or yeah, you know, whatever was in that slot, and it tended to be like slow character-driven stuff because that was what they booked. So that was made me go, oh, I can appreciate slow burn stuff. So then, you know, as the and you and this, I think, has fed into my my love of real slow burn horror over the years, which I know we've talked about, Matt, in the past. Well, hell yeah, <laughs> Matt M. You know, I mean, it's like I'm I'm always you know, you you put something like you know a dark song in front of me, and I'm like, this is the best thing ever. Can it be five hours longer, please? <laughs> that's just yeah. You know, I think you just that's you just have this maelstrom of influences that it's like, can we have gore but slow? Can we have you know character driven, and then everything goes to hell at the end? That's perfect for me. That's just what I want. Plus, you know, occasionally mm-hmm. big ship chasing little ship. That's <laughs> I'm a man of simple pleasures. I have a quick question before we get to the movie portion of this episode. But so, I mean, like with the video nasty era and like the censorship and things of that going a lot along, like, were there any horror flicks that you ended up watching, you know, home at first and maybe edited down by the video nasty uh, board that you then watched later, maybe like in America or something that you realized like, oh, I haven't seen the whole film. Well, here's the thing. Um, I remember the video nasty era and what 
people people kind of look at it and go like, oh, well, you know, it was super censorious. But what they forget is that the home video market before the video nasties thing really hit was just a mess. People were turning their front rooms you know, where I live. They would literally, you know, you, you can see these these people go, oh, well, the video. this is what a video store looked like. And it's, you know, it's Suncoast or it's Blockbuster or it's kind of, you know, in, or it's Scarecrow. And it's these big places with lots of tapes. That wasn't my experience growing up in a small town in the north of England, the town of Macclesfield, where precisely two things happened. One, it was the centre of the British silk trade. And two, Ian Curtis of Joy Division killed himself there. That's it. Mm. That's, that's all we've got. And my, my first video store, some guy just bought a load of tapes, um, sealed the front, front of his house off from the back, and turned his living room and his front hall into a video store. And that was it. And you paid three pounds to rent for two days because tapes at that point were really expensive. And you'd go in and he had everything alphabetical. There was no sections. So you'd have, you know, Driller Killer right next to some Romanian version of the Ugly Duckling. Uh, you know, or, you know, some... Bratislavian animated fairy tale uh, neck next to you know uh, yeah a, a, a weird bootleg of um, flesh for Frankenstein just the it, like none of this made any sense so you know it was really easy for people to come in and say we need to crack down on this and unfortunately the people who cracked down on it hated film thought that everything was obscene went completely nuts and we ended up in this weird censorious era as the most famous the two most famous terrible cases are one texas chainsaw massacre 2 being banned in the uk because they well not banned banned is the wrong word the technical term they were not greeting they were not granted certificates so that meant they couldn't get distribution unless individual theaters went to the local councils and said, we want to show this film. Can we please get a temporary license to show this? And then they could grant permission. The rest of, yeah, but it, nobody's going to go through that. I mean, I knew a couple of, of places that did. So I knew one of the first places in the UK um, after its initial, initial release to show I Spit on Your Grave, the original version. And he literally went to the council and said, look, I've been given this print. I really want to show this. It's a historically important film. And they said, yeah, you can show it twice. Um, but it was really hard. So kind of, I, re I remember some of this stuff where it was like, I was watching really inappropriate films by accident almost. And then, you know, just getting them back to the video store before anybody noticed. Um, but yeah, we were very aware there were films we could not get, you know, most of what I was most, mostly by that point that I was really getting into horror. It was, you know, it was just like, you ain't going to get Evil Dead. You're just not going to get hold of a copy. The first time I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, another critic I knew, and this was, I think, 2002, because it was like two years before it finally got um, the certification reconsidered. And he'd got hold of a third generation copy from Belgium. Uh, and he said, 
you yeah you have to get this back to me because this cost me a fortune to get hold of so i watched it and you know he'd just literally been sent just a random bunch of stuff because he said well i want this and they said we well, got to take three other tapes for it to make us worth it, make it worthwhile on the shipping so they sent him that um two of the ilsa movies and uh one of the um chinese um manchurian occupation we used real bodies for props uh you know experiment camp horrors i can't remember which one it was now uh, man behind the sun yeah so they they sent him those and it's like a little bit of a difference there between texas chainsaw massacre an art house classic and uh man behind the sun which is just you know oh don't eat for a week beforehand so yeah I, back then and this early into the early 2000s it was still some of the stuff you could only get through bootlegs um and knowing somebody who knew somebody who might be able to get hold of a copy um so yeah when i first got to austin there was very definitely this like just run to the video store and rent everything you can and go to every you know terror tuesday which at that point was terror thursday at the draft house and you know these films that i knew of but had never had a chance to see because if you were only going to be able to put it out in this bastardized heavily edited version well you know nobody really was interested in that particularly by the time dvd came around the distributors were like well either we're going to put out the original version or we're not going to bother so they just didn't bother so we had a long delay on a lot of stuff coming out, but you know it, it's not that situation anymore. Pretty much everything is has got some kind of release, and you know now we all have we all have region free players, so <laughs> you can get hold of everything. So it's become redundant, but it did slow stuff up, and it did add this kind of weird cachet to a lot of you know classic horrors just because you could not get hold of them. So you wanted to see the the best version you could, and the best version you could was you know literally third fourth fifth generation vhs copy that was being run off in a you know the back of a shop somewhere and you hoped that you could actually see something through the fuzz and that, that was the major thing when i got here and everybody was so caught up with the love of 35 millimeter and the, the more beaten up the print was the the, you know, the cooler it was and i'm like still looks better than what i've been watching because i can actually mm. see something and it's you know not, a, not it doesn't have scan lines on it you know oh it's a little bit red oh i'll take that <laughs> that's a huge step forward for me well we did we did the intro part in reverse i think because we started in the contemporary landscape of austin and backed all the way up to the early days of the 80s with you watching banned films so but you know what? It feels appropriate for you, Richard, to, to do things a little backwards. And I actually like I like where we ended that conversation because I think it provides some interesting thematic connections to today's title. So when we come back from our break, we're going to talk with Richard about warning, do not play. Stick around. If you follow me on Twitter, you probably know that I'm a huge fan of board games and tabletop RPGs. So of course I'm going to be a fan of Mixtape Massacre, the slasher-themed board game from the team Brightlight. Mixtape Massacre is everything I want from a beer and pretzels board game. I get to teach my friends how to play, and in exchange, they let me kill them. And if you're new to the Mixtape Massacre family, now is a great time to learn more with Mixtape Madness 2, their upcoming virtual game night. 
Visit mixtapemassacre.com slash mixtape dash madness to RSVP and even check out some of their cool merch. Before you think this is a paid spot, it's not. We just really fucking like the game. Back to the show. Hey, welcome back. So the episode this week is on Warning Do Not Play, which is a 2019 South Korean horror slash mystery slash found footage slash a bunch of other really interesting film genres that we'll get into in a minute. Um, Unfortunately for me, I was not able to find any really good interviews with the cast and crew, so I don't want to um, disparage them by trying to pronounce their names. Usually if I can find an interview with one of the creators and I know how to pronounce their name, then I will do it. But for this, we'll just kind of stick to titles and roles. Um, So the plot is about a contemporary filmmaker who is trying to graduate from a short that she made, a well-received short that she made, into a full-length feature film. She's got writer's block, as so many great horror filmmakers do, and she is on the hunt for inspiration and influences in the film community around her. She catches wind of this classic 10 years ago found footage horror film that apparently drove a movie theater insane and whose director disappeared into obscurity. Uh, think raw when it premiered at Toronto, kind of that sort of a vibe. And what she discovers is that the film may not have been actually the influence of a mere mortal. It may have been steered by the hand of a ghost who uh, potentially led to the death of the crew. What evolves from that is sort of a, a film slash meta film about horror and of horror. And it takes it to some really interesting places. I'm very glad that you picked this one, Richard, because this is a Shudder exclusive, but like a lot of Shudder exclusives, there's a ton of horror that probably is a little bit more appealing, a little bit more high profile. It's kind of as far as Shudder goes, a bit of a deeper cut, I think, um, which is sort of a, feels like it should be a catch 22, but you know, good on Shudder for having quality programming that you can say such a thing as a Shudder deep cut. But let's start with, uh, with kind of your recollections of this film, why you wanted to bring this to the table, what made this stand out for you? Well, I mean, I, I love a film about filmmaking. Um, I always have a, a deep soft spot for those. Um, usually because anybody who, any filmmaker who goes, let's talk about our industry. They're working through some baggage. Um, you know, you, if you, one of my favorite is Living in Oblivion um, by Tom DeSillo. And everybody, everything in that is Tom DeSillo just complaining about the film industry and the lead character is a very thinly veiled version of Brad Pitt played as a complete moron. <laughs> mm. A film is great. You know, I, I like everybody else. I just adore, um, uh, one cut of the dead. Uh, cause that is just a great film about filmmaking. And so when I first heard about this, I'm like, Oh yeah, this is, this is right up my alley because it's, you know, it's horror but it's commentary on filmmaking. And that part of it is about unpacking, well, what's the damage that the filmmaker is, is bringing to this? Why are they making a film about this particular struggle? And I actually, it's kind of fascinating because uh, the direct, the writer director, uh, Kim Jin Won, uh, if you stretch your memories back to, I think it was around two. 2007 2009 in between 2007 2009 i'm trying to remember when the exact chronology it was released originally in 2007 did a couple of festivals i think then it got picked up at the the um the after dark series of dvds which was uh um 
basically kind of a, almost like a curated like a festival is like each mm-hmm. release series they did there was like six or seven things that had played on the festival circuit uh hadn't got picked up by any of the major studios but really had something worthwhile and they put this brand on them you know and stuff like stuff like grave dancers which you know got a little bit of cachet on the on the I, i'm using that word a lot today i don't know why <laughs> just stuck it's a good on word one. keep it's using a, it's a fine it word. It's, it's the word of the day underserved. this episode is brought to you by the number three and the word cachet thank you um cachet for men uh but you know you had these films that were were couldn't get released so they just stuck them together and go just if you pick up a an after dark you you guaranteed a certain degree of quality and people were picking up all of them and one of the ones that caused a little bit of fuss was the butcher which was kim jim Wan did this film that it's a it's a film about making a snuff film and Half it is shot from the viewpoint of the torturers, and the other half is shot from the viewpoint of the tortured. It is not an easy watch. It is super violent. It's really ugly. The tone of it is very nihilist. Um, and he was not a particularly competent filmmaker at that point. So it's it's all the cliches of shaky cam. Half the time you can't work out what's going. It's it's a really good idea. Because from a kind of conceptual and philosophical viewpoint of like, well, why do we want to watch extreme horror? That's that's always a thing that's interesting to me, is, is why mm-hmm. we are drawn to horror. Well, Kim Jong-un did this. People were talking about, well, maybe he's going to be the next great Korean horror filmmaker. He's at least going to you know, start pushing a few... And disappeared. Like, did nothing for years and years afterwards. And so what we have here is a film where the filmmaker, she's, you know, did her cool art, you know, it's, it's implied that it was her graduation thesis film. Everybody liked it. She comes out, she's the hot new talent. She's got a production deal with a cool studio and she's stuck. She can write something, but it's kind of derivative garbage. And she's very aware that she needs to do something that's going to make people actually care about this movie. And it actually opens with this whole sequence of her running from a ghost in a, in, in a, in a theater and heading into this, into the parking lot. And all the J horror and K horror supernatural cliches of like, Oh, mm-hmm. the lights go out coming towards her. And then, you know, she's got to use her camera to illuminate the ghost. And they're like, it's every single cliche. That, that you were stuck with at that era. And then it's like, well, that's the script she's handed in to the distro house, to the production house. And of course, the guy's like, why would anybody want to watch this? Everybody's done this. And it's almost like Kim Jim Wan has gone like, yeah, we've all seen this. I'm going to do something new that's pushing this very, you know, the, the played out idea of, you know, the long haired ghost. I've got to do something new with that. And while there are aspects of that very burned out story in there, you've also got, you know, first of all, you have a protagonist that is a little complicated, um, which is, uh, apologies, my Korean pronunciation is is abysmal, and I will freely admit that. Um, Seo Yi Jai as Park Mi Jung, the, uh, the filmmaker, and she's 
manipulative. She's driven by desperation. Uh, she's prepared to lie. She's prepared to steal. There's a great sequence where she's heard this story about this film that it played at a festival and she's kind of tracked down a little bit of information about it and knows that it was like done at, by the guy who was supposed to be a, a student at, uh, at, at uh, uh, Dijon University. So she hangs around a bar and waits for a bunch of film bros to turn up and start talking about film. And it's, it's a beautiful sequence because they're all talking about Christopher Nolan and uh, Denis yes, Villeneuve. <laughs> well, I love it's how like, there's so even great. Nolan bros in Korea. Like they, they yeah, go out of their way yeah. to be like, no, there's still Nolan bros in Korea. Like that part makes me laugh so much. Well, it's and, the and only kind of... It's the only kind of film bros you feel like, you know, she like there might have been a couple of people talking about David Lynch. And she's like, no, not them. And then the guys come in to talk about Nolan. She's like them. That's the ones. <laughs> Absolutely. And she comes in and just like starts flirting with them and being like, oh, I'm the cool, proper filmmaker. And they're like, oh, oh yeah, you, you've actually done it. You've got the you've got the deal. You're, you know, oh, we've heard of you. And she kind of plays around with them to get that out of them and it's actually a really beautifully done scene with a lot of really fascinating character beats because it also kind of introduces the one character who's going to follow her around a little bit um uh ji yoon ho as uh jun Sio, who's the best friend figure who's kind of a kind of a film geek and a little bit nerdy and he puts himself into, into bad situations because of her but she's you know she's on the hunt for this lost film and the more she finds out about it, it's not just that the film gets more complicated. It, it creates more interesting ideas about what it is that you're looking for when you talk about the inspiration behind a film. And the, the, the story of the film itself gets more complicated. But it's, it's a film talking about, insp about inspiration and like how much are you passing off other people's work and ideas as your own work and that's kind of it's very subtly woven in there but it you know you can really feel uh that uh, uh kim jim Won is 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 playing with these questions of whose story is whose um mm -hmm. at the same time I, you know, and it's you say you, know, you mentioned found footage and I, I think this is actually a slightly different genre um which is finding footage um which is about how we because found footage found footage is is i i've i've long had this big argument about what found footage is and i'm a real purist i basically say look you have you the only things that are not film that is discovered and put up as it was found you know discovered in air quotes and put up as it was found in air quotes is a bit at the beginning saying this is this was was found and then maybe a card at the end going like if you have any further mm -hmm. information i think anything other than that is not found footage i think it's pov footage and uh you know because i always have this argument when it comes to you know cannibal holocaust because cannibal holocaust is clearly set up as a drama where they find some film and they you know, they take it back to New York and they put it in and then at the end the distributor goes oh this film must never be shown and burns it so you're like well, okay this isn't found footage it's a film about found footage and I feel this is you know this if you look at that as a genre in its own right there's some really fascinating 
stuff that goes on. The, you know, one of the best examples is Ring because it's about the tape and it's about, well, you know, what do you do when you are given an, a visual artifact and what does that visual artifact do to you? And here, you know, uh, you know, Mijung is on the hunt for this footage uh, which nobody can seemingly find for the longest time. And people, there's a lot of stuff people trying to you know, go through old files and old desktops. Mm-hmm. And, and there's some wonderful in-jokes about, well, they sent us a thing to the film festival and we may still have the file around, but the hard disk may be corrupted, <laughs> which I thought was, was great because I, I, um, uh, a few years ago, um, I talked to uh, the director of a film called Pig, um, which played the festival circuits in the thing is like 2006. And it's, it's this horrible grimy film, which is this guy gets, gets off a, you know, it gets out of a plane and goes and tortures this woman on a, on a farm. And it's really, really. It's the, uh, it's the Adam Mason one, right? That's Adam, the Mason, Adam, Mason. Adam Mason's right. Pick. And I talked to Adam about it and, Adam had basically said, you know, and he said to me, I made this when I was really at a, a low creative ebb, and I basically went out into the, uh, into the desert. And uh, his term was, I vomited this film out in five days. And then I never thought I was going to make another film again. And it played a couple of festivals and he kind of buried it. He was like, I'm actually, you know, I, I, I'm not ashamed of it, but I have such a, a you can't look at a pile of your own vomit and, and have a good time with it. Uh, and then South by actually called him and said, can you, can you re-edit it? Can, can you put it back together? And we want to show it as like a 10th anniversary thing. And he's like, I don't even know if this exists anymore. And he said, I literally went down into my basement, uh, which had been flooded um, previously, managed to find the two hard drives, pulled the files off. And as we're getting the, the last of the files off the second dr- uh, disk drive, it burst into flames. <laughs> so if you know, that was the only copy that existed. Like nobody else had it. And if I, you know, particularly nothing that could have been, you know, there might have been like a, a, a you know, six forty pixel screen grab version of it somewhere. But this was like the right. only place where an actual decent quality copy of it existed. And it's, I, I love that to... we live in a time where people can say like, this film doesn't exist anywhere. And there's like a thumbnail version on YouTube. And they're like, no, actually we meant it didn't exist anywhere. I don't know what that is. Yeah. What the hell is this? And he said, you know, like if it hadn't been for them calling him when they did, like it would have gone forever. And, you know, this, this idea of like, well, a film was made and it played once at a film festival you know, it, it kind of fits into the grand tradition of like, oh, there's this mysterious film. But the fact that in the sequence when she goes to the film, the film festival programmers and says, oh, do you still have this? And they go, oh, it's fucking, it's a film. Like we get sent so many of these and they're never heard of again. And I watched that and like, I just, it was like somebody punched me in the heart because the number of films I've seen at festivals that you never hear of again is endless. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's from experience. That's a Mm -hmm. filmmaker who's like, I submitted some stuff and it didn't even make it to IMDb. (laughs) 
Have if I, only there I, was a podcast that dove into those movies. <laughs> oh no, you guys are way too high profile for the. I mean, stuff that, like, <laughs> that's true. That's true. You know, that is like, true. That is true. Stuff that I've been to at festivals where there was me and uh, me and the filmmaker and his dog, <laughs> and I'm looking at him like, does is this real? Am I hallucinating this? <laughs> you know, it's like Jacques Tati walks through wearing giraffe arms or something. And like, suddenly I'm like, ah, no, this film isn't real. I was dreaming. It's fine. But yeah, the, these the films can disappear. And that it's, there's something very low key about her search that it's playing with this convention of, oh, the missing film that drove people mad. And she, but it's like for everybody else involved, it's just like, yeah, it was this, indie horror that we showed at the festival like i mm-hmm. think i remember i think i've heard of it but i'm not really sure but then it does unpack as well as this as playing into exactly those tropes of the film that drove people mad and like everybody's heard of that legendary film where every threw up at, at the screening and it's like then you get to the bottom of it and turned out you know oh yeah somebody threw up but that's because they'd been to some junket and eaten three pounds of rancid shrimp beforehand and it was their own fault or you know they were they went to Park City and it, they were fresh off the plane, went to a screening, stood up to stood up too fast and you know had vertigo. Well, this happens, you know. It's like there's no yeah. mystique there, so you can see how somebody would fall down the rabbit hole of just like this is just this is just hunting for a film. This is just looking for something that we we miss. So while it play while it, it is part of a, a very established genre of like I said the the finding footage horror. At the same time, it's also kind of stuff that we know about as people involved with film who just go, you know, films disappear or nobody cares. And that's, the, yeah, again, that sequence where she goes to, to uh, the uh, Bouchon uh, International Fantastic Film Festival office, which is a real film festival. Right. Um, uh, that she, that he, she gets there and they're like, ah, who cares but then Mm -hmm. in the background while she's doing you know up to shenanigans you have this phone conversation where he's like oh no it is that film it is the kind of mysterious missing film that you really don't want to find and it's going to unleash hell and ghosts um and extreme violence um i you know it so there's it plays out as like i said it's both a very conventional find the weird film find the story behind the weird film find the weird filmmaker uh and it does have a great weird filmmaker uh jin seong kyu as uh, as uh, kim jae hyun and he's great like when when you fight when he comes in and he's all like don't try and find my film it's like oh yeah i want you as crazy indie filmmaker number two again you're just awesome mm. <laughs> he's such fun um and a real well, it's great such counterpart a, it's such an interesting like combination to what for this movie to come out now i think and you hit on a lot of this richard when you're talking about it but the way that it draws on the last decade two decades of southeast asian horror films the way that it, it talks about um kind of repurposes and absorbs a lot of we'll say finding footage or found footage tropes but also it kind of uses a lot of of color schemes and lighting palettes that we associate with like grindhouse cinema 1970 stuff there's and a, in particular big sequence in red lots of sequences big one. in red big this one, one in this red. one goes out to you matt <laughs> oh no trust me when you when you oh, picked those... this i immediately was like i knew the film immediately because i saw it and i was like i'm i couldn't believe number one it only had two reviews and i was like 
it's a shutter How? exclusive too. What the hell? But it, I love I love the, the... that week that that caught everybody's attention. And this is one of the fascinating things for me about when we talk about films that don't get enough of a reception is the utter luck of the draw on this, mm. which is just heartbreaking. The idea that you know you just happen to get released the same week as something else and everybody's attention is distracted by it and you get buried just because you were a week the wrong way um what i call blind spotting phenomenon uh, mm. i love the film blind spotting um it was my favorite i think it was 2019 18 or 19 when, when it came yeah, out 18 19 yeah. my favorite film of the year and when it played the festival circuit it got completely overshadowed by Sorry to Bother You. And I came out of that thinking, wow, so there's only space for one Bay Area film by a black filmmaker every year. And the number of people who, like, in the intervening years have come to me and said, I feel bad that I missed blind spotting because this film is fantastic. And I said, I spent the last four years telling you this. Where were you? <laughs> but yeah, you know, it was just that it was just timing. So I, I mean, I, I need to go back and look at the release schedule and see whether there was something else that came out that week that was what everybody was talking about it and just got completely distracted. And I only saw this by accident because I, I literally, I occasionally I'll go, how much time do I have left in the day? And I will look and see what will fill that slot like and this is this is pretty brusque it's like 82 86 minutes, minutes. 86 oh, minutes. so so nice to watch oh, a movie under 90 minutes a, it's great just a joy so it's you know it's you know it doesn't it doesn't let up it just it's very brusque and very brisk uh which is delight um but even i i, I caught it it was probably three, four weeks after it actually dropped on Shudder, but I was moved enough to go, I want to write a review of this. And and this is the one problem with so much horror, you know, A, so many horror films getting distribution now because people have realized you can stream on horror and people will turn out in big numbers and there's a dedicated fan base and we have multiple horror streaming sites. Um, and there's a lot of press who want to write about horror. So... That's great. It was, but then it was a we do June get films release. like this that just fall through. Yeah. Oh, it was a June release. On... So like, I'm trying to go back now and day. I did the same thing. Cause like at that time I reviewed everything. So I'm like, what the hell did I do? You know, warning, do not play. And I, I couldn't tell you why I didn't get to this one. It was just one of the ones I couldn't hit. Um, and like, honestly, I was shocked that I went on Rotten Tomatoes and I, I wasn't one of the three or two reviews. Uh, Cause mm -hmm. I was like, how did I even miss this one? Because I saw it when it came out. Same thing you did. Like I saw it when it came out and released because I always go to Shutter and see the new releases, even if I don't write about them. And I was just like, this is a dope little piece. And I will say it's a dope little piece because everything that you said, Richard, like it does the right things with being the haunted film, but it still produces a horror film narrative. Uh, I would call it like screen life too. the way it does it. it. It's definitely about finding footage in the way that like archive 81 is about finding footage and how the tape affects you as the person watching. But you know, it's also about screen life a little bit too, because she's using her phone for a large time to like see the ghost in an almost like fatal frame kind of way. Um, so there's so many things working into it, but shortly before that, or maybe not even shortly, like maybe within a year, uh, I saw a film called Antrim, the deadliest film ever made. And oh, yeah. what they tried to do, 
is they tried to sell you the deadliest film ever made. And that was my biggest, like, I, I hated that film. I hated that film because what you do is you tell me that you're showing me a quote unquote haunted movie that's going to be this right. cursed thing. And you do the fake talking heads beforehand. You tell me that it had a fake screening that the entire theater burned down and all these things. And then you give me a movie that is just a narrative, just dud. It's also not scary. So like you've created to me an ineffective horror film and then you've packaged it in a way and tried to sell it as this like cursed object. So for me, like I, I never fell into that experience. I completely fell off of it and I, I hated that film where I watch warning do not play. And to everything that you said, you know, it is doing K and J horror. It's doing those things where it's playing with the tropes. It's trying to comment on at the same time and still delivering very tight cinematography, going back to what Monagle said with the reds and like the grindhouse aesthetic. And you get these great little decrepit theater scares where now you have a director who's gone to the place where the first fatal filming took place. And like the chairs are all broken down, like the, the awnings are all like uh, just falling apart. So you get the haunted house aspect. You get everything that you kind of logged into and you get the idea of where this haunted movie came from. And it's not being thrust down your throat to be like, you have to believe this is the most haunted movie that's ever been made. And like you watching it are going to be doomed. Like, no, I'm watching it as a viewer. I can watch this as a horror fan and I can watch the story play out and tell me why this cursed titular film that should not be played uh, is going to doom humanity if it does get out there. And like, I just thought it was just such a neat little way to tell that story um, in all of not even 90 minutes. So like I was, I was into that ride the whole way. The, the only thing yeah. is like a lot of reviews that came out that aren't on Rotten Tomatoes and like people critiquing it and the comments and stuff like that on Shudder is they, they start playing with time a little bit. And there's a flipping back and forth between the modern day director and the past directors, uh, you know, again, doomed film shoot where the ghost shows up and possesses him and his crew starts dying, um, where they start blending. And a lot of people seem to not be able to parse that apart. And that was the reason why why, why a lot of the negativity kind of came down on it. I think that's why people didn't watch it, too. Like, I think that word got out. And for some reason, everyone kind of looked it over. But like, I, I don't see it. I think it's tight in what it does. I think it's compact. Yeah. And, yeah, like, the, uh, oh man, like, I, I dig this movie. You know, like, I, I usually when I tweet about a movie we watch for the podcast, I get a few people being like, oh, man, like, yeah, more people should talk about this one. Like, ain't nobody talking about warning to not play. Like, that tweet went and came, and it was just, like, not a single person. I'm like, yeah, no one really does know this movie. Got it. Well, I, and for me, that final sequence, uh, it's, you know, I, I love Great. that. Because it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, not only is it really well executed, um, and that is also the moment um, where Kim Ji Mon goes, "Yeah, I can still, I can still hack gore." I mean, it's not butcher level, but it suddenly gets very gruesome, and some of the deaths are pretty damn creative, um, and also the the logic of how the the ghost actually operates gets really fascinating but what i really liked about it is that i like a supernatural horror where it isn't just like oh it's a ghost in a sheet and it hurts you because it comes and punches you although the ghost is very physical you reach this point where the laws of reality break down and 
time isn't what you think it is. Location isn't what you think it is. You've, you know, stuff that seemed to be a flashback, you're going like, oh, hang on, that wasn't a flashback. There's actually something very complicated going on here. And it's this idea of curses as loops. And there's a, a, there is a very smart bit that's built in earlier on where one of the characters goes, oh, well, I heard this story you know, because she, she's asking for urban legends relating to the film school. And he says, well, I heard this story about this thing. And then you go, oh, hang on. No, that actually does feature in. That's not an aside. You, re- you know, there's some really tight little plotting going on and some little hints of what's going on. And when you go through that, se- that section, you do go, oh, hang on. So this actually all does come together. And then when you have the final payoff, I think the ending is actually very, very ambiguous. And I think that's mm-hmm. beautifully done because it's, you can do the reading where you just go, oh, okay, this is a straightforward supernatural horror. But you can also do another reading. That's the one I, I kind of prefer where you go, well, this really is about the creative process. And it is about writing yourself into other, other people's stories. And I think both of those work well. I think the, it's... Uh, kind of like Welcome to Pleasantville, where it gets to the end and you go, oh, that's a complicated ending because it, it lets you read two different endings in completely that both work. And I that ending for me is actually one of the real strong points for it that makes it both a, a horror film and a film about making horror films. And that's where it really pulls all its themes together and that it manages to... It, it doesn't do that lazy thing that a lot of kind of meta scripts try to do where it goes, oh, and the aristocrats and just just hands you a glib answer. Instead, the mm. ending is, is worth the trip and it's worth the revisit because it's a film where you go back and go, second and third watches of this pay off an awful lot and bring in a lot more details and you can start to see things coming in. You'll go, oh, okay, no, this is where seeds are laid that the more attention you pay to them, the the deeper and more interesting and and more enigmatic the ending becomes. And that's why that's that's why I really love this film. I think it's a, a really smart little movie that challenges you in multiple ways, push the director to look at his own work and look at what other people were doing and provide a film that is both a version of it and a commentary of it. And, you know, that's why Scream, that's why the original Scream worked. The original Scream looked at, you know, what was happening with Slashes and went, we have to talk about this. We have to talk about these films and what our relationship with with them is. And this does some of the very, some very similar things. We're going like, let's talk about our relationship with these films and not just like, do we like them? Do we hate them? But what's the motivations for making them? What are we putting together? What is our story? What are mm-hmm. storytellers getting from telling this kind of story? Uh, what are we doing from ripping people off or taking other people's ideas? There's a, there's so much to unpack here. It's just a really deep, nuanced film that is also a, just a banger of a supernatural horror with with yeah. with some really great kills at the end. <laughs> I will absolutely say that. There is a sequence involving a wall that is so simple, but I'm like, oh, this is just, nope, nope, no fun. <laughs> it does. So it, it's it's the rare movie where like every it's a kind of a glib way of saying it, but like every 15, 20 minutes, it went up half a star. It just like, it, it's, it's 
it's a film about acceleration and it starts as both of you have said in sort of like a, you know, J horror kind of space where you're like, I've seen this, it feels almost like an American remake of a Japanese horror film and that it's like very pastoral and high production values, but like a little empty on the inside. And then you realize, okay, they're, they're kind of fucking with me. But the two biggest compliments I could give this film, um, one is that it it's big climax has what I can only describe as Clive Barker energy. Um, you know, I am the, I am the monster and have been the monster all along. And the other thing that, that I love about it, and I think part of the reason why it hits different, even between 2019 and 2022, I think this movie hits different. And I think the reason why is because of it, the way that it deals with trauma. Two, three years ago, I think we were still in the space where like every every horror movie that came out was like, it's an allegory for trauma. We were like, fuck yeah, allegories for trauma. Let's do this. It's deeper. It's smarter. It's more rich than that. And I think that's become such a commonplace thing, especially in indie horror, that it feels... I don't want to say a little played out, but like I am now suspicious of anything that feels overly grief field and overly traumatic. And I think what this movie does with the the main character and the arc that she has is it sort of asks some unanswered and pointed questions about the appropriative nature and the performative nature of trauma and horror that you get to this, this, this ending, this absolute like whiff of smoke of an ending. And you're like, okay, did she tell someone else's stories? Was it her story to tell? How are we supposed to feel about the like the negative energy, the trauma that went into the creation of this? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? And I, I it makes it a really interesting counterpoint to five years worth of A24 films where you're basically like, okay, so I feel a little weird, a little icky about kind of like, like, yeah, show us your trauma, man. Like take all your sad thoughts and put it on the screen so I can feel good about it. At the end of this, you're sort of like, all right, maybe that's a mode of cinema that we, we can afford to get a little bit away from. Yeah. But it's the law of like popular cinema at the same time. It's like once hereditary is a hit, everyone after that wants to make their hereditary or, you know, just going back to any of those trauma-based filmmaking where that's not to say we haven't gotten tremendous films from it. I mean, like, again, we've gotten films like relic from that. So we are in a moment in time now where traumatic based horror and again not to say horror has never been traumatic based like that is that's always intertwined but when you put it to the forefront and the way that it's been put to the forefront i think everyone immediately thinks that like that trauma-based horror has to be long slow brooding all the stuff that you two dorks love but like then you get a movie like warning do not play (laughs) and then it allows donato to have fun with the traumatic based movie as well (laughs) because it's like you give me the spooky scaries you give me those like even it's the easy scare of the eyes and the darkness coming out of nowhere and like jolting onto the screen. And, you know, it's not to say it's reaching super high at times with the horror, but again, it's just effective. And if it's effective, you don't have to reach super high. And I think, again, that's where I put uh, warning do not play in something of a realm with movies that are just watchably entertaining, uh, watchably entertaining and effective and I kind of felt everything I wanted to feel in a horror movie. And it, again, it did it in under 90 minutes. And it's like a lot of filmmakers could take notes from that. And it's great oh, this because is, it's lean. This yeah. is a yeah. super lean film. And it's like the, every scene is there for a reason. And I, I think it's, it's really been fascinating because I, you know, I, I started watching, um, you know, a lot of J horror when stuff started appearing kind of just post ring, um, uh, and uh, I remember being at a uh, the Leeds International Film Festival when they still were doing the horror all nighters, um, and we got the first screening of um, The Grudge uh, at four in the morning when we were all sleep deprived, 
and that thing comes in and I'm like, oh God, I don't have time for another film. And it's like, that thing comes in, smashes you in the face and runs away really fast. And I'm like, huh, it's okay to be brief. You don't even have to hit close to 90 minutes. And I think that was one of the great things about the, the J-horror and K-horror explosions was that because Japanese television in particular, there's still space for horror and pretty extreme horror on Japanese television. You'd have stuff that was getting released on on tape or on DVD in the states. And it was like, uh, it, it's it's fifty eight minutes because this was on TV, but you're getting it as a film. And I'm like, great, <laughs> let's just be lean and efficient. Nothing fucking wrong with that. It, it horror is like, I, I can't remember who it was. I discussed this with. Um, uh, it was a filmmaker, and basically he said no. Oh, it was Ruben Fleischer. It was actually a pleasure about um, Zombieland uh, and Zombieland 2. And he said, uh, I don't think comedy needs to be longer than 90 minutes because peop- if if you're genuinely funny for 90 minutes, people will be so tired by laughing, they, they won't be able to go any further. You know, you've just mm-hmm. physically taken them to a limit. And I think a lot of horror can learn that lesson. It's like, if you've got somebody on edge for 90 minutes, you know, give them a break before they have a heart attack. <laughs> let, let them go home. Let them go to the concessions. At least let them go pee. You know, that's why horror yeah. was the basis for, you know, the the classic drive-in double bills. And stuff was, was you know, I, I love watching, I'm a big fan of Sven Gulli. And, uh, you know, he he has a two hour slot, and there are some times where he goes, "Well, we've got a lot of put put a lot of padding material because this film is only sixty two minutes long. So I'm going to be doing three songs and showing you some footage of when I went to you know C two E two. And I'm like, yeah, or that. Don't be afraid. Just if you've got if you just just to to uh, use a uh, a wrestling uh, wrestling phrase, get your shit in and go home. <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong with that oh yeah that's another thing we didn't touch on i am actually a um uh, i'm not kidding on this i am actually uh the as far as i know i'm the only rotten tomato certified critic who is also a uh, pro wrestling ring announcer i didn't so find a natural way to bring that to... up i was gonna say i never found a <laughs> we'll natural way jammed it right the fuck in there at the end <laughs> why not why not like, so so yeah but that it is it's like get, get your shit in and get it and go home and that's that's there's nothing wrong with that. And this this film manages to get its shit in and go home, and secretly sneak in a lot of shit that you can go back and 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 really appreciate what it's trying to do. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna end it there, and I'm gonna say that in a weird kind of way, I think that makes Warning Do Not Play maybe the best possible certified forgotten film. In that it is a hit for Donato for all the reasons that Donato likes movies. It is a hit with me for all the reasons that I like horror movies. It's under 90 minutes. It's readily available. It's on Shutter. Normally we say, well, you know, how are people going to rediscover it? I, you're, We're going to make you go rediscover it. Go see this. Give this movie some love. You're already subscribed to Shutter, anyways if you're listening to this podcast. You don't need to watch, I don't know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 for an eighth time. You can take or, or it all and go watch. Well, or it all. I mean, you can take an evening and go watch Warning Do Not Play instead because this is this movie is a lot of fun and it's gonna I can already feel it sitting with me in a way the even among the quality of movies that we watch on on this podcast, I can already feel it sitting with me in a way that a lot of those don't. Yeah, I mean like I won't belabor this, but like just to echo what you just said, I 
I'm still baffled that it has so low viewership. It's just one of those things where this would be the part of the podcast where I say, well, it'd have to go to Shudder to find its right audience. And I think like, it's on Shudder. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like it's on Shudder. It, like it, maybe it is waiting for one of those releases. Like, you know, last year's Detention got a release on one of the Vinegar Syndrome sublabels. It's like, I don't know, maybe Warning Do Not Play has to get that physical release on one of those higher profile distros for indie horror, because I know Shudder is putting out their own movies on blue, but not a lot of people seem to know about that. It just isn't getting the promo that it, it again, that deserves alone because movies like Satan's slaves, where if they went to Netflix, they'd sit there, but on Shudder, you can own Satan's slaves. You can own these wonderful movies. So you know what? Warning men at play may be on blue already, but it's not in the blue. It has to be on. And yeah, I, 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 I'm just baffled that, you know, no one gave this one any mind when it came out. No one. No. Slip, slip by. And I think we do need to go back and do some archaeology uh, and find out, like, what was mm -hmm. it everybody was writing about that week? Because it must have been something that just distracted. There was some nice, bright, shiny toy that was, like, flashed in front of us all. And we're like, ooh, there. And poor, poor warning, do not play was like, hello. Everyone go back to June 2020 and tell us what you were doing. Tweeted us what you were doing <laughs> the beginning of June 2020 where you weren't watching this fucking movie. I choose to take a positive spin and say that there's just so much good horror out there these days that even now, Me too. a film yep. like Warning Do Not Play can fall through the cracks. Yeah, boo. But, Richard, it has been... Oh, the no, thing is, go ahead. podcasts like this can help people find these movies and give them the, you know, give them the life maybe a little bit after they, they should have had it in the first place. But, it, you know, you guys do... You do sterling work here. You know, you're putting eyes on films that people, you know, people may not have seen or may have dropped off the radar or were, you know, I mean, the fact you guys kicked off with Found, which is one of my, you know, you want to talk about sub $20,000 movies that I think punch so far above their weight and didn't actually get seen by enough people, but are steadily kind of picking up picking up that audience and people are becoming aware of them. Although, I, you know, I still actually have um, my hand-signed copy um, that Scott Shermer, where he, before it got distribution, uh, he did a brief run of DVDs himself. And um, I did the Q&A for Found at Housecore Horror. And as a thank you, Scott gave me the last of that first run before then it, it actually they, they did a proper release and it turned up at walmart and i i messaged him and went did you know when you were in walmart and he said that's the funniest thing in the world because my super violent weird meta sideways uh gruesome horror about you know mental and physical torture of, of a young boy uh with a lot of erect penis in it um mm -hmm. is it walmart what is this world about? And, I, <laughs> and that thing is phenomenal. And I think there are people who've now, because you guys talked about that and talked about some other films, now those films again, their audience. So you guys are doing something really valuable here. You know, I, I wouldn't use the word hero, Richard, but thank you for, Neither I, would I. I appreciate, I, I, I appreciate you no, I for would. using the word hero yeah. in your description. Um, we, we are. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, Richard, I know the festival season is almost upon us. And so oh, I know that you're going to be God. doing a ton of coverage, a ton of interviews, um, especially for folks who are either traveling to Austin. I think if you don't if you don't read Richard because you're not in Austin, but you come to Austin for film festivals, you're kind of fucking up because he's telling you a lot of things you should probably know about the scene here. Where's the best place for people to go and find your stuff on social media or online? Uh, you can find... Uh 
all my assorted nonsense um, at um, the at austinchronicle.com. If you're in Austin, always pick up. You can always feel free to pick up a an actual physical copy because we're still in print, baby. Still going. Mm-hmm. Forty years going strong. I've not been there for all of them, but uh, you know we we have a huge archive of all our reviews. I think we got everything, every film that we reviewed going back to 1992 is actually in our online archive, um, which is kind of insane. Um, and the first review was a Mark Savlov review, just in case there's any, like that dates all the way back to 92. And we are, we are, we are harsh as well. We have a five-star rating system. And in the entire history of the Chronicle, we've only given five, uh, three five-star reviews. Jeez. M, <laughs> Ran, and Kagamusha. And that's it. Because like, if you, you, you know, if you say Kagamusha is a five-star review, you got a lot of catching up to do to do anything even close. <laughs> it's kind of like this holy grail thing. I'm like, one day I'll write, I'll find something that's a five-star. One day I'll get there. So I'm just, uh, I'm just hoping that we, we do that. But you know, we always try and be brutally honest. But we always try and be honest. And yeah. Uh, so yes, AustinChronicle.com, and you can uh, find me on uh, on Twitter at uh, Yorkshire TX. Usually starting fights. That's that, really, really what I do. Yeah, but then advocating true. for... That's absolutely true. Well, it's not my fault you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> there's never, there's there, very rarely is there a time where I get a notification that says, oh, Richard Whitaker has tweeted at you where I'm like, oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it usually I'm sa- this'll be, said this'll more be productive. nice about you than I think anybody else on Twitter. I love getting texts from you. I love getting emails from you. When I get tweets from you, I get a little sweaty. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> oh, bless. Donato, man. It's festival season spinning up for you, too. Where do people go to find your stuff? Absolutely. At Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. You can also find my authory page with all of my writing in one single place. Uh, Matt Donato on authory because I don't feel like listing out all the places I write anymore. Yep, that's the beauty of it. You can follow me on R3. It's Matt Mon- Matthew Monagal, I think, is the, uh, the the URL there. You can follow me on Twitter, at Matt Monagal. And as always, please visit certifiedforgotten.com. Uh, we're, we're inches away from a, a website redesign that we're really, really excited um, to share you guys share with you guys what we've done. Um, our, our friend uh, from Mixtape Massacre has done an incredible job with some of the work that he's put together. So... Check us out on Certified Forgotten. Read the really cool writers that we have to say. And Richard, it may uh, may have been late, but we're glad that it happened. Thank you for joining us on the show, oh, man. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been an absolute blast, guys. Donato, take us out. Two press play, you jabroni. <laughs> so stupid. Every time it's worse.